Uh, as we get into our study this morning, we're going to be covering Jesus' final approach to Jerusalem. Chapter 21 describes for us the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and marks the beginning of what is traditionally known as the Passion Week. And so, uh, but before we get there, uh, which will be in a couple weeks, because I won't be here next Sunday, it'll be the following week, uh, we'll get into chapter 21. Uh, Today we're going to look at the last recorded miracle of Jesus before entering into Jerusalem. Okay, and we're going to try and learn from some of the examples left by Jesus, as well as those who were healed by the Lord. And so we're going to finish off chapter 20 of the book of Matthew. We've been making our way systematically through the book of Matthew. So each week when you come, you know what we're going to be doing for the most part. We're going to pick up where we last left off. And last week we left off at verse 28. So this morning we'll pick up with 29 and finish off chapter 20. Okay. Will you please stand as we read this morning's text just to honor God and his word? You know, back in uh, the Old Testament, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, when they, they found the scrolls and they read it, they, everyone would stand uh, just in, in honor of the word as they would read from the scrolls. And so it's just something that we do here. It also gives us one last opportunity to shake our legs out before we sit down. All right? Let's read our text this morning. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And so Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity uh, to gather together as uh, brothers and sisters in you to sing of your praises, of your goodness, your faithfulness in our lives. And Lord, even as we prepare ourselves just to study your word and to uh, understand your heart and how you did things and why you did things, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just allow this to be an academic study where we kind of uh, you know, file away some facts or some interesting notes, but Lord, that we would allow your word to penetrate into our lives. And Lord, that we'd be able to make application of your word into our lives today, then how we're living our life for you, Lord. So Lord, I pray that uh, each and every one of us would come this morning with uh, an excitement and an anticipation that you're going to speak to our hearts, that you do have something you want to say to each and every one of us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts Open our eyes, open our ears, that we might receive all that you have for us this morning. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Verse 29 says, Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Uh, Verse 29, it opens up our text this morning telling us that Jesus... And the disciples were exiting the city of Jericho. Now, for our study this morning, we will make a couple different references uh, to the other gospel accounts of this event. 
Mark's gospel records the details of this event in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. While Luke's gospel uh, records, uh, Luke's gospel record of this event is found in Luke 18, 35 through 43. And so if you'd like to turn to those different accounts, maybe have a bookmark there or put your bulletin in there. You want to be able to flip back and forth. Uh, I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, otherwise, we'll, we'll try to show the different verses up here on the screen for you uh, that you might be able to follow along. Okay? Well, from the other gospel records, we will be able to get a fuller, more accurate picture of what took place during Jesus' trip through the city of Jericho. Last we left off in our study of Matthew, we knew that Jesus and his disciples, that they were traveling uh, along a road leading to Jerusalem. Remember, they crossed over to the east side of the Jordan River. They came down through the land of Perea, and then they crossed back over uh, to the western side, and they're making their way towards Jerusalem, and Jericho is in between where they're at and Jerusalem. And so that's where we last left off, okay? A look at Luke's gospel is interesting, though. If you look at Luke's gospel, it says that this event happened when Jesus and his disciples were coming near Jericho. Okay? Some may look at this and think that there is a contradiction of sorts within the Bible, uh, but this can easily be explained. The difference is between Luke's uh, saying that this happened on the way uh, drawing near to Jericho, and Matthew and Mark says it happened as they were uh, going away from Jericho. And so well, which one is it? Okay. The thing that we need to realize is that the city of Jericho is a city that was a very rich city in history. Okay. If you guys uh, recall that the, one of the first detailed accounts of events in the city of Jericho is actually found for us in the book of Joshua, all the way back in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So the sixth book of the Bible, we get a detailed description of uh, life in Jericho. Okay, You will uh, remember, if you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, remember Joshua, he was placed in charge of leading the Israelites into the Promised Land. And one of the first cities that they came across was the city of Jericho. Joshua and the Israelites... They utilized, uh, I think, for what maybe many of you would consider a very odd military strategy okay, in their conquest of the city of Jericho. The Lord told Joshua to walk around the city once for six days straight, and then on the seventh day to walk around the city seven times, and then to have the priests blast their, their horns, and then everyone would follow that by shouting out loud. Okay? And although it was an odd strategy, Joshua and the Israelites, they followed the Lord's instruction. After the men shouted out, we're told that the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. Okay? And the Lord delivered the city of Jericho into the hands of Joshua and the Israelites. Okay? After his conquest of the city, Joshua pronounced a curse upon the city. And that whoever would choose to rebuild it, in Joshua chapter 6 Verse 26, he declared, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And this prophecy was, was fulfilled. Okay, when a man by the name of Hiel of Bethel, 
rebuilt Jericho. We're told about that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. It states that he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. After it was rebuilt, Jericho continued as a city inhabited by others and was known as an oasis. It was filled with date palms, often being referred to as a city of palms. Maybe we can kind of picture of a, a desert oasis, palm trees, palm springs maybe. Or, I don't know, I've never been to 29 palms, but is that... No, 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 I'm getting lots of no's. That's not a desert oasis. Okay, uh, Palm Springs, okay, Palm Springs. Uh, I've been there. That's a desert oasis. Uh, picture that. That's the city of Jericho, okay? Anyways, early, in the, er, early on in the years of Herod the Great, the Romans plundered the city of Jericho, okay? But Herod later came in and built a new city just south of, of the old one, less than a mile away from the old uh, area of the old city of Jericho, Herod rebuilt a new city of Jericho, okay? Calling it Jericho, he beautified it, he uh, uh, built a winter palace there, we're told, and he built uh, luxurious um, ornamental gardens and uh, just created this new city of Jericho. And so uh, during the days of Jesus, there were actually two sites for the city of Jericho, the old city from the Old Testament records, as well as Herod's new city of Jericho. And so when Matthew declares that as they went out of the city of Jericho and then came across some men on the road, it would make sense that Matthew speaking of the Old Testament location of the city of Jericho. While Luke states as Jesus was coming near Jericho, Luke is obviously speaking of Herod's new city of Jericho. And so the idea is they made these guys on the road in between the old city of Jericho and the new city of Jericho. And so there's no contradiction that takes place here. You know, Matthew and Luke are, are talking about two different locations that just happen to have the same title. Okay? And, I, and I want to just highlight that because I believe many of the so-called contradictions that people will try and say that the, the Bible's just filled with contradictions, you know, they can easily be explained with just a, a little bit of study or even just a little bit of common sense. And so I want to encourage you guys to be equipped and be ready to be able to give an answer. If someone comes and says, this seems like a contradiction, well, well know those things and be ready and don't say, oh yeah, that is Say, well, let me dive into that. Let me, you know, dig in and see what I can do to try and explain that to you. And oftentimes, a little bit of study will go a long way and be able to say, no, we can trust God's Word. It's reliable. It's not filled with a bunch of contradictions like a lot of people try and say. Well, back to our account. I also want to point out here that they were traveling, that traveling with Jesus and the disciples was a great multitude. Okay? Uh, remember from our study last week that the Passover holiday is drawing near and that every Jewish male was required to journey into Jerusalem and offer sacrifice at the temple during the Passover holiday. And so uh, the multitude is no doubt made up of people that were followers of Jesus uh, from the region of Galilee. But I think it's safe to say that among this group are, of people are also those that are making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay? The Passover is uh, most likely less than a week away from the time Jesus and his disciples are passing through Jericho. The city of Jerusalem would be beginning to, to swell with visitors as they come to celebrate 
the Passover holiday. And, and I believe that this great multitude of people, they're probably very anxious to get into the city of Jerusalem, secure places to stay and places to prepare and partake of their Passover meal. We see that's what Jesus does when he begins to enter in. He sends the guys ahead and says, hey, go find this place, and we're going to go do this, and we're going to do that, and set it all up. And, and so he even sends a, a team ahead of time to kind of uh, set things up. And so we kind of get this picture, this idea of this great multitude. It's, it's a mixture of followers of the Lord, but it's also probably people that are just journeying and pilgriming to Jerusalem. Well, verse 30 says, And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. We see that as they were exiting what we'll call Old Jericho, Okay, uh, old Jericho, they were drawing near to new Jericho. They came upon two blind men sitting by the road. And now when you take a peek at Mark and Luke's account, you'll notice that they speak about one blind man. And Mark even tells us the name of one of these men. And his name was Bartimaeus. Okay, we often call him, refer to him as blind Bartimaeus. Okay. Again, this is not a contradiction. Okay. Mark and Luke simply highlighted the one blind man instead of both of them. Okay. Perhaps Bartimaeus was the more vocal of the two blind men. We don't know why Mark and Luke only highlighted the one. But we do know that just because they only mentioned one doesn't preclude the possibility of there being more than one. Okay. I tried to think of a, a good example. And uh, I thought of the men's breakfast yesterday. You know, uh, a number of guys came out to the men's breakfast yesterday. I was blessed to have you guys out there. It's good to have a good churnout, uh, men and their children, their sons with them. It was a great time. And if you were to talk to different people about yesterday's breakfast, some may tell you that they went to breakfast with their sons, which would be an accurate statement. Okay? Others may say that they went with a bunch of guys from church, which, again, would be an accurate statement while others may just single out the guys that they sat next to or the guys that they talked to at the breakfast. Each of those statements uh, would be true. Okay? None of them exclude the opportunity of there being other people in attendance. And so the same is true here in Mark and Luke's account. Okay? Just because they only highlight the one blind man named Bartimaeus doesn't mean that there couldn't have been another blind man with him. And Matthew clearly says, tells us that there were two. And so Matthew's mention of the two blind men, it's simply an account told from a different point of view about the same event. Again, not a contradiction. Okay? Why were these blind men just sitting on the side of the road? Mark and Luke, they tell us that these men were beggars. Okay? It, it, was, a very common, uh, it was very common in that day for people with disabilities to line the streets coming in and out of cities uh, soliciting alms from the, those traveling to and from the cities. Often they would be placed up at uh, gates, entrances into cities, and to ask and to beg uh, for alms and for donations, uh, provision. John 9, John 9 tells of another blind man that was known as a beggar in the streets that Jesus healed in John uh, 9, verse 8. Acts 3 tells us of the account of a lame man that was set at the... Uh, Temple Gate, the gate called Beautiful, uh, to ask for alms. Acts chapter 3 tells us of that account. And so we have lots of different accounts of people, uh, beggars that have had um, 
disabilities or limitations that were placed on the roads and on the city, at city gates, uh, begging and asking for alms. Okay? In those days, blindness, it was an affliction for which there was no cure. Okay? And, and all really a, a blind person could do was uh, resolve themselves to being a beggar. Uh, to beg for their basic daily sustenance. You know, it's interesting because in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, Moses gave specific instructions about how the Israelites were to care for their brethren who were poor and to give to them as much as was needed. It reads in verses 7 and 8, If there is among you a poor man or of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, You shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Yet, despite the commandment of the Lord to help their brethren in need, many beggars lined the streets and entrances into cities daily. And the mere presence of beggars really was uh, uh, evidence of Israel not following God's commandment to care for their brethren's needs. Many people would simply pass on by these beggars without giving any regard to them. When these two blind beggars heard that there was a great multitude passing by, Luke's gospel tells us that they inquired about the multitude. uh, There was a large crowd passing through, and so they start asking, what's going on, what's going on? They can't see, but they can hear, and they're wondering, what's going on? And uh, Luke, it tells us uh, in Luke that the people told them that it was Jesus of Nazareth that was passing by. Now, I have no doubt that these two blind beggars had heard of the miracle worker from Galilee. Word about his healings had been spreading for the last couple of years as he's been ministering predominantly within the region of Galilee. Okay. We've been reading through, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, uh, about great multitudes of sick and lame and demon-possessed that were coming to Jesus, that were being brought to Jesus by their loved ones. And I imagine that these two blind men perhaps felt a bit of hopelessness at times after hearing about the miraculous healings that were taking place up in Galilee Yet they were stuck in Jericho, presumably without the means to get to him. But now they hear that Jesus of Nazareth is in their midst. He's passing by and they're not going to let this opportunity pass them by. They cry out to Jesus. Uh, The Greek word translated uh, cried out is krazo. And it's a word that refers to the cry of a woman in childbirth. And so some of you ladies may be able to realize and picture maybe what that cry was like as they cried out. Maybe some of you dads too um, can recall uh, being there and hearing that type of cry. That, that's how they cried out. Uh, like, like a woman in, in labor giving childbirth, they're crying out to Jesus. Okay? They said, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. They're calling out really to to Jesus really was an expression of great faith. Okay. First, they had faith to believe that Jesus was able to help them in their current condition. These men were blind. There was no known cure for blindness. And yet they didn't let that hinder them from calling out to Jesus. 
they had faith that he was able to do the impossible when they called out to him. Second, they had faith not only in Jesus' ability, but also in his identity. When they called Jesus the son of David, that was a messianic title. The Messiah was to come from the line of David, and the title son of David was a title reserved for the anointed one that would come and establish a kingdom that would last for all eternity. Amazingly, these two blind men were able to perceive that Jesus was the Messiah, but those with perfectly good vision, like those of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, were blinded to his identity. And it's a testimony to these blind men's faith. Third, these blind men, they had enough faith and understanding to simply ask for mercy. You know, they didn't come with, with sob stories of how difficult it is to be blind or how tough their life has been or how they deserved a, a break, that they deserved God to intervene in their life and to heal them. They simply asked for mercy. You know, mercy is an aspect of God's love that causes him to help the helpless. Mercy, it really is the only thing that we can request on our own. There's nothing that we've done that can merit uh, God's blessings and provision upon our lives. So we we simply can only ask for mercy. We ask God not to give to us what we really deserve. These blind men knew that the best thing that they could request was the mercy of the Lord. And it made me think, what about us? Do we have faith in God that He can help us in our current situations? Do we have faith to believe that He is who He says He is? And do we realize and understand our own desperate need for the Lord and our helplessness when it comes to doing things on our own and trying to get to God through our own means? These two blind men, I believe they exhibit a type of faith that we would do well to emulate, to follow. They had faith to believe in Jesus' ability to do the impossible. They had faith to believe in his identity as the anointed one of God. And they had faith to believe that they were at least honest enough with themselves to be able to assess their current situation and realize their inability before the Lord and their need for mercy. Verse 31 We're going to continue. It says, Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Those amongst the crowd, they basically told the blind beggars to pipe down. And they warned them that they should keep quiet. They didn't like the, the way that the blind beggars were calling upon the name of Jesus. And you know, this statement from the crowd, it intrigues me. What did they warn them with, I wonder? You know, what was going to happen to the blind men if they didn't keep quiet? You know, usually when we warn, I warn you, if you don't do this, usually it's followed up with, you know, some kind of um, threat or something. You know, I I just wonder, what are they warning these guys with? You better be quiet. Uh, It just intrigues me. 
Okay? What bothered the crowd so much about these blind men crying out to the Lord? Was it, was it simply just annoying to them, or, or was something else in play? Maybe they were just concerned about shouting in Jericho would consider this history. Get it? That's a joke. You know, they shouted and the walls fell. Never mind. Ferris said to scratch it and I didn't. I should have. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, moving on, okay? Here's what we do know, though, okay? These men, they weren't the first ones to ever be told to pipe down about the Lord. And they certainly aren't the last ones to be told such. You know, in today's politically correct world, it seems to be okay to talk about most anything as long as it doesn't involve Christianity. People are constantly being threatened to pipe down about all that Jesus stuff. And it makes me wonder, what are they afraid of? Why does it cause so much animosity or frustration amongst others when people talk about Jesus? You know, if so many people don't believe in God or His Son, Jesus Christ, why do so many people have a problem with people talking about Him? It doesn't make sense to me. If, I, if you, know, you have an imaginary friend that you like to talk about, it's not going to be bothering me if you're talking about your imaginary friend because I don't believe in your imaginary friend. But that's not what happens when we start talking about Jesus Christ. Let me suggest to you that the reason they don't like it is because they don't like the conviction that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit, whose mission is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. You see, when we call upon the name of the Lord, and when we speak of Him, it testifies of the Lord and His working in our life. And when we do that, those that aren't walking with the Lord are reminded of that very simple fact. And it makes them feel uncomfortable. How did the blind beggars respond to the crowd's warnings to pipe down, to quiet down? They cried out all the more. You know, and I like that. I like that a lot. You see, these blind beggars, they weren't going to let others keep them from crying out to the Lord. They weren't concerned about offending people or making people feel uncomfortable. They knew they needed the Lord. And they weren't going to let the opinion of others keep them from calling out to Him. To have such unashamed desire for the Lord, I believe, is a beautiful thing. These men were unashamed in declaring their need for Jesus. They could care less about what the crowd said or thought. You know, and I aspire to have that kind of relationship with the Lord, and I hope and pray that you all would have that type of relationship with the Lord as well. That we wouldn't be ashamed of crying out for the Lord, that we wouldn't be ashamed to speak of the Lord, that we wouldn't be ashamed to declare our hope that we have in God. I know that for Many of you in your workplaces, you have to walk a fine line. That the world's system is set up in such a way that uh, now that you can lose your job or that you can be uh, accused of harassment, and, and I get that, and I'm not in any way trying to tell you that you need to cross that line. Here's my fear, though. My fear is that instead of knowing where that line is and walking it, 
under the grace of the Lord. That we, we totally abandon it and we won't even come close to it. We treat the line like the plague. And in so doing, we never take opportunity to declare our faith in the Lord. And I want to encourage you all to be unashamed of your relationship with the Lord. And when appropriate, speak of His goodness. Speak of your need for Him. And when others ask about your private life, be bold and share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You know, don't let what others may think or what others may say prevent you from testifying of the Lord. You never know what could happen after striking up a conversation with someone. That is how I got saved. That is how I got here in Iwakuni, Japan. You see, I worked at Nike Town in Costa Mesa, California. And there was this guy that was always downstairs reading his Bible in the break room. His name was Rick Barnett. After approaching him about a question regarding football and why people hold up signs in the back of the end zone that say John 3.16. You don't see that anymore. I wonder if that's like illegal now and people make you not wear them. But you just don't see it anymore. But it used to be, you know, they're kicking the extra point, you football guys. And then they'd have some guy in the back of the end zone holding up a sign. And I asked him, what is that all about? And he shared me. You don't know what John 3.16 is? No. And he shared the, that verse, what it means. And, and what ended up happening is eventually our conversations led to more conversations. It led to me, uh, him leading me to faith in Christ. He discipled me. He, he got sent out to Japan as a pastor in some place I had never really heard of called Okinawa. Okay. I moved out there to come alongside him and assist him before eventually answering the call to come here to Iwakuni. It all started with a guy that wasn't ashamed of sharing his faith with those around him. And he didn't do it in a way that was against company policy. There was rules in place. Nike's a big corporation. They have rules. He had free time. And he used that free time to the Lord. And when opportunity presented it, he seized it. And I'm so very thankful. I hope that you might be able to be that Rick Barnett for someone else. That you would be unashamed of your faith in the Lord and be willing to step out and to talk about it and not let others, what they say, what they think, whether they'd say, hey, keep it down. Stop talking about that stuff. That we wouldn't let that hinder us. How did Jesus respond to the cries of the blind beggars? Let's read verse 32. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? I love the picture that we get here of the Lord. Here he is, less than a week away from fulfilling the mission that he was born to complete. His whole life has been building up to this time. Jerusalem is less than a day away. The cross is within a week. Thirty plus years of life have culminated to fulfilling the mission that lies right before him. And yet, the, the anticipation for what lies before him didn't prevent him from stopping to minister to the needs of, of someone calling out to him. Jesus is never too busy to take 
care of those that call out to him. He stood still. He stopped what he was doing to minister to the needs of others. There Jerusalem was before him, up on a hill. Jericho is very low, sea elevation. Jerusalem's up on a hill. He could see it. It's before him, and he stopped to minister to the needs of others. You know, I think, humanly speaking, if I were about to fulfill a lifelong mission and somebody asked me to stop what I was doing to help them out, I probably would be too focused to even pay any attention to them. I probably wouldn't even hear them talking to me, let alone say, yeah, let me stop and help you out, but not the Lord. It blesses me to know that the Lord's never too busy to take care of those that call out to Him. But you know what? It also convicts me. You see, I want to be like Christ. And I want to be a good representation of who He is, and especially to my family. And yet, at times when I'm reading an online article or watching something on TV and my kids ask for help or attention, I often want them to wait for me. I'll ask them, well, let me just finish this article and then I'll, you know, just wait or wait until commercial or wait till this show's over or whatever. And I'll do that. And it convicts me to see here Jesus is about to fulfill a lifelong mission and some blind beggars amongst a great multitude of people are calling out and he's willing to stop what he's doing to minister to these needs. You know, that oftentimes when I'm doing that, there's things that aren't even important, and yet they get more attention than those closest to me, and, and that's convicting. And I want to be more like Christ in this manner, to be willing to stop what I'm doing to help meet the needs of others, and I hope that you guys would be as well. Jesus stood still and he called the two blind men to him and he asked a very interesting question. He asked, what do you want me to do for you? I find this interesting because I'm confident that the Lord knew what they wanted. He wasn't asking the, this question of them because he was unaware of their need or he was unaware of their desire. I believe he wanted them to verbally express their request. To let their requests be known unto the Lord, as Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 teaches us. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Just like Jesus wanted these blind men to audibly declare their request to Him, I believe the Lord desires the same for us. That when we pray, that we would let him know what our needs are, what our desires are. are. Okay? Do we pray and, and let God know about these things because he doesn't know about them? No, absolutely not. Of course not. Right? He knows our needs. He knows our hearts. He knows, he, he knows what we're going to pray even before we pray for it. And yet, he still wants us to pray and to make our request be known to Him. And so let me pose that question to you this morning. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And I'm not trying to advocate for some genie in the bottle type of make a wish 
Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. That's not how we come to the Lord. Okay? But seriously, consider that question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Give it some real thought. And, and let your request be known to the Lord. And, and I want to encourage you, don't let this just be a generic thing. You know, I want to be a better Christian. Okay? We all want to be a better Christian. Okay? Or I want to be a better father. Or I want to be, you know, be specific. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And let your request be known to the Lord. And pray. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, okay? But we, we do that. It's part of our faith. It's part of acknowledging Him and trusting Him and, and, and being, taking steps of faith and saying, Lord, this is really what I, I, I need you right now in. This is what I want from you. This is what I hope to get from you. Not in a, you know, take, you know, like I said, you know, make our wishes kind of a thing. But as we walk with the Lord, what do we want? God to do for us. Be specific. Let your request be known to the God. What did the blind men request? Okay, verse 33. They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Jesus, we want you to open our eyes. Okay? A simple and sincere request from these two blind men. They want to be able to see as others see to take in the sights and wonders that this world has to offer. You know, making a request to have their eyes opened is a logical request for two blind men. But I think that it's even a good request for people that have perfect 2020 vision. You know, I often ask God to open my eyes so that I can see as He sees, so that I can see the needs around me, those hurting those struggling, those that uh, maybe just need a, a firm hug or an encouraging word. I want to see the world the way the Lord sees the world. To see sin as the poison that it is. To be able to identify and, uh, temptation and compromise as the cheap tactics of the enemy. To see His hand working in the lives of the people around me and to rejoice over the great work that he's doing. What a great request that we can all make. Lord, open our eyes that we may see as you see. Verse 34, So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Jesus had compassion. The Greek word for compassion suggest to be moved as to one's bowels. Okay, and that might sound a little weird or gross. Okay? Uh, they believed the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. Okay? Today in our world, at least in the Western world, we, we, that's not our bowels, it's our heart, right? So, oh, our heart was just ached within us, right? Well, back then it was the bowels for some reason. Okay? So that's what that word compassion means. It means to be moved within the bowels. But we can kind of, we can understand it to mean that, he, uh, that they were moved in his heart. That he was moved in his, uh, to, to feel deeply towards something. To yearn for something. Jesus' heart was moved towards these men. And this is something that has been evidenced time and time again. The compassion of Christ towards both multitudes and individuals. 
Jesus was moved with compassion when he looked upon the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd in Matthew 9:36. Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the multitudes of sick people and he healed them in Matthew 14 verse 14. Jesus had compassion upon the multitude that had followed him for three days and they had no food and so he fed them, some 4,000 men, not including women and children. Jesus was moved with compassion when he stretched out his hand and he touched the leper and cleansed him in Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Compassion was a central theme in Jesus' ministry and it ought to be a central part of our lives as well. May we not only see as the Lord sees, but may we ask for his heart that we might love as he loves. In both Mark and Luke's account, Jesus is recording as saying that the faith of the men had made them well and that after speaking these words, the two immediately received their sight. Upon receiving their sight, Matthew records for us that they followed Jesus. Okay, these two blind beggars that were stationed on the roadside, blind and in darkness, in desperate need for the Lord's help, unashamedly called out to the Lord, not caring about what others said or thought. And God stood still, and he heard their request, and he answered them. God had compassion upon them and touched them and brought them out of the darkness and into the light. They were once blind, but now they can see. What a beautiful picture of what it means to come to the Lord in faith. We too were once blind. We were living in darkness. We were in desperate need for the Lord's help in dealing with our sin. And we responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We called out to the Lord, not worried about what others, what others may say or think. And God heard our cry. He answered our prayer. His compassion was shown to us through His Son's work upon the cross, taking care of our sin. And we were brought out of the darkness and into the light, and we have become children of the light. It's a great picture of what it means to follow the Lord. You know, as we consider the examples that were left for us by both the blind beggars as well as Jesus, I believe we can see some great application for our own lives. The blind beggars, they teach us to have faith in God's ability and to trust that He is who He says He is and not to rely upon our own abilities, to not let others keep us from calling upon the name of the Lord. They encourage us to be unashamed of our love for the Lord not to worry about what others may say or think. They teach us to let our requests be made known to God, to be specific in our prayer life. Their request to have their eyes opened is one that I think we should all request, to see as the Lord sees. And lastly, they teach us really just what the natural byproduct of a life that has been touched by the Lord looks like. It follows Jesus. That's our natural response. When God touches our life and He brings us into the light, the natural thing ought to be that we follow Him. Okay? You know, your Christian walk isn't done when you come to the Lord. That's when it begins. And we get to journey with Him and follow Him. 
Speaking of Jesus, he too leaves behind some examples that we should learn from. Jesus reminds us that he's never too busy to care for those that, that call out to him. I hope that we too would be willing to stop what we're doing to be a blessing to someone else. Jesus was moved with compassion, and we noted how it was such a vital part of his ministry and how we ought to ask God to give us his heart that we might love like he loves. Nick and the worship team are going to come up here a couple more minutes before we close off. I'll close in a word of prayer, but we're going to close in one more song just to worship the Lord. I want to encourage you just to meditate upon the things that we've covered this morning and uh, consider that question. What do you want God to do for you? What's God doing? What is he doing in your life? What would you desire for him to do? And and let's be specific. As we worship him and just adore him and uh, surrender ourselves to him in one last song, I pray that the Lord would minister to your heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the blessing of your word. We thank you for really the beautiful picture of what uh, it looks like to surrender our life to you in faith. These blind beggars, they were, they were blind. They were in darkness, and, and you had compassion upon them and, and brought them into the light. Lord, you, you restored their sight to them. Lord, uh, what a beautiful picture of what our life was like without you and, and how we've come to you. Father, as we... Uh, sing this last worship song, I pray that our hearts would be centered upon you, that you'd continue to speak to us as we worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.